I didn't take a drink all day. Well, maybe just a nip. But what I saw and heard would make any brave man flip. Six little people gathered around. This is what I heard. Can you hear me at all? Hello? Wait, what? Okay, there you are. Let me plug you in on the board again. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> ah, there you are. Okay, excellent. Okay. There we go. Now yes, we got... I did! Who are oh you yelling God. at? Why are you yelling at me? I'm not yelling at you. I would never. <laughs> no, Ed upstairs is yelling at me to make sure I picked up the phone and he doesn't understand that subtle nuances of cell phone communication when you live deep in a, a, a treacherous canyon uh, that's been bombarded by hurricane force winds recently. Um, it's it's very taxing and it's difficult. And I have like the worst service uh, company possible for this area, but I, I trust Richard Branson more than I trust uh, that Verizon guy kind of to my detriment, I guess, mostly. <laughs> Oh, that's working now, so that's good. Great. Excellent. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. I better play the intro. Um, Which which intro should I play? You know the three different ones, right? The original one, the one that says It's Greg, that's actually a uh, piece of the old Lone Ranger radio show, and the anti-ETH one. Uh, The anti-what? It's a uh, it's a opening that I use most of the time. It has um, Jacques Vallée, John Keel, and Mac Tony's telling us why they don't like you don't like the ETH explanation for UFOs. Oh, the ETH. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That sounds that sounds good. The anti ETH. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here here it is. I, I think you can hear it. Let me turn it up so you can actually hear it uh, through the Skype. Okay. Should I should I keep my no, computer on really low? Well? Extraterrestrial. What'd you say? Should I keep my laptop on really low the volume or no? Yeah, you should probably turn the laptop down. Turn your radio down, sir. You know, otherwise there'll be a delay and a, right. an echo. Right, right, right. Yeah, Why are you listening to the show on your laptop right now? 
No, no, I, I'm not. I've got my Chromebook on and open, and it's got 50 tabs open, so to navigate <laughs> to actually the right page is going to take a second. So it's like, oh, Netflix from 12 days ago. Uh, well, as, lo- as long as it's forget. not, yeah, as long as it's not playing this show, it's fine. Because otherwise, you'll hear oh. either that or just you know mute out the tab. Here, here here's the uh, Ronnie Mysteri- Mysteriosa intro with the anti ETH message from three of our heroes. Right, right. Okay. Well, wouldn't that be good, though? No, I always think it's good to have it on. Extra okay, let me stop it again. What? I, I just thought it's best to have it on in the background really low just so I can know what's going on, or no? <laughs> oh, no, it's okay to have your computer on. Just don't have it on playing the audio from this show. Oh, okay. All Other right. than that, okay, it's totally I fine. Just, I, I will just sit back. I will just sit back in my chair and... uh and uh, stare at my kitty cats that are in their cat stroller and about a foot away from me. Yeah, it's about and, two uh, minutes of intro. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, here we go. All right. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology, we're not here to prove that we're being visited by, you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we uh, in good condition here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Are you still there, and can you hear me? I am here, and I can hear you, and uh, I hope all is well. It is. I'm just trying to figure out why well, you're only coming through one sta- one channel now. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> still there? Blame for that, too. <laughs> uh, that one channel thing really bothers me. There we go. Hmm. Well, no. 
Okay. Very yeah. weird. Oh. Uh, <laughs> my my control over electronic and somehow even makes it through <laughs> airwaves. <laughs> um, that's very funny. I, you know, I'm one of those people that walks past uh, light posts and the lights go off. Uh, oh, yeah, and I did a, read it. There's a whole book about that called Sliders, I think. Ah, well, I, I did create a convincing explanation about, you know, a person generate, generating their own, like, electromagnetic field and this, that, and the other. And it wasn't, like, uh, something to be proud of or, like, oh, I'm more psychically adept, therefore I make these light bulbs go off. But um, it was kind of, uh, I don't know, it was kind of pedestrian, but but interesting. Um, <laughs> so Most uh, people are, uh, they're, I think they're kind of embarrassed about it. They, they, don't, they, they don't use it as a... Uh, a bragging point. I'm reading. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I'm, I finally am reading the book on Ted Phillips by Jeffrey Mishlove, the PK man, which is uh, he definitely bragged about all of his um, controlling the weather. You know about him, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So I mean, I I'd never bragged about it. I always thought it was very curious, and then at some point, I did run across uh, a convincing explanation. And, you know, I have people tell me all kinds of weird things about myself, and I operate in alpha waves 24-7 and various what, whatnots, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I sometimes, you know, can't figure out what's hooey and what's not hooey, especially in the current climate that we find ourselves living. <laughs> um, well, you don't know what it is. It's um, there's a. I just posted a, sh- a story for Coast that's coming up next tomorrow about a piece of software which makes it really easy to add and subtract things into videos. People, objects, anything. Uh, you don't need to be an um, expert at uh, any uh, special effects um, software. This actually helps you quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. So you can't oh, trust video crazy. at all anymore. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So it just kind of like multiplies. Like if you have a crowd, it just kind of like, ran- like randomly generates figures in the crowd i mean i i mean the video technology has been so sophisticated for years now that um you know like people went crazy over that uh jerusalem ufo video and this that and the other and you just go i can't i don't trust i don't trust anything I, I, you can't trust anything unless you see your own two eyes and even that suspect you know if you think about project blue beam and things of that nature and uh you know i mean you, you're playing this introduction about the E.T. hypothesis, and I'm sure going, yes, but at the same time, I did witness a small man in coveralls walk out of my wall one night in Las Vegas, so um, I don't know what's real. <laughs> I do know that um, Mother Nature is real, though. So. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Well, um, should I read an introduction off your site, or do you want to do, do you want to introduce yourself, or do you want me to just go, talk off the top of my head? <laughs> oh, oh, is that is that safe? Is that wise? No, go ahead because I I'm like so just out of survival, freak out, fire evacuation mode, and sort of with that delicate balance of coffee and and cat cat petting over the last couple of days. That um, whatever you say, I'm sure will be gold. <laughs> okay, well I'll just I'll, I'll read the uh, right off your site, and I'll. I'll um, I, I think I'll just read the first paragraph. Skylar Alphagrin began her professional writing career as a teenager with a column of 40 in exploration for a nationally distributed magazine, File of the Damned, File O the Damned. 
which investigated ufological, paranormal, cryptozoological, and other lesser-known phenomena. From there, she acted as assistant editor for Ben is Dead, which was a great magazine, magazine, and began writing for the LA Weekly. Not yet of legal drinking age, she was hired as a consultant to Strange Universe, the Fox Network's nationally syndicated paranormal news program. She followed this with stints as a film critic and roused about for ahead-of-its-time Gen Y web magazine called iFuse, and E! Online before being sought out as a researcher for the Sci-Fi Channel and various publishers and production companies. She's labored as a features writer, film critic, music journalist, television personality, mechanical tinker, animal wrangler, radio guest and organizer, lecturer, and chronicler of the curious. Her work has appeared in publications as diverse as The Believer, Fortean Times, and Hustler, where, where she was known as UFO Girl, as well as many of the other publications, books, and websites. Has been translated into at least 23 languages. Um, I, yeah, and uh, I've known Skylar since 1991 or two or something. I'm like, no, I can't wait. I would have been in June. No, I had to be a few years past that because I was born in 1977. So, <laughs> yeah, it seems like that long. I, 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 yeah, it, it does. It's time, time is, time is a strange and amorphous thing. You know, it passes very quickly sometimes and very slowly. What happened? Yeah. What happened with the, you were, people kept asking me online, oh my God, are you okay? The fire is, oh my God. And I told them that the media would have you think that the entire city is burning down. I don't know why. I'm right in the middle of an urban area. However, many people I know were affected, like, you know, Don and Vicki, um, Cooper, I'm, I'm Ecker, and, um, uh, Sigrid School, um, Pacifica Institute. That, that may very well, be uh, burned um, by now because oh it's, yeah, it's, it's oh uh, approaching God. that and uh, my sister almost got evacuated but they put the fire out near wow. her wow um, uh, D. Schiller one of the listeners the, go ahead well, so what happened well, to you I was just saying your, your sister is she in North San Diego or I mean because it's like thousand you're oaks. in the news that, oh okay if, if you're you know not not in Southern California and you hear you know, uh, them throwing out terms like 150,000 acres burnt. That's a lot of territory, you know, and, and LA, LA proper is 475 square miles, which is massive. It's gigantic. I mean, you could fit two UKs in the, in the space of California, this state. So it's like its own freaking thing. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, the fires here it, it came within, I mean, I had to peek out a little, area behind my, my bedroom window and uh, there was one main street, there's uh, a little wiggle up towards what's known as the Tahunga Wash, which is this kind of formerly wilderness area turned homeless encampment center that keeps getting cleaned out. And then there are the foothills right there. I mean, like my backyard is the base of uh, Mount Lukens, which is the tallest peak in Los Angeles County. I mean, that's miles and miles away, but it's, it's gradual and um, it's scary as hell because you know it's 60 60 degrees in the other direction just a couple of months ago we had what mayor garcetti called the largest uh forest fire wildfire in los angeles history uh you know the biggest the biggest uh, seventy thousand acres and um you know i realized fairly quickly once the fires were out and not looking like they were you know just over you know the edge of the next block um, that they were calculating the acreage uh, 
vertically. Not you know, so it's like a bunch of rolling foothills with scrub brush and and uh, treeways winding in between and a couple of canyon roads and a handful of houses. But um, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And then lo and behold, here come uh, like the most demonic hurricane force Santa Ana winds I've ever been through that I can I can remember and I, I last Tuesday I literally I was uh, on, a, on a project the deadline for a company in London and uh, and I literally had to be torn away from my laptop <laughs> you know it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna work outside and if I have headphones on I'm transcribing right now I'm not gonna be able to notice that my face is being uh, pulled off just by the wind but um it's so crazy. I mean, because earthquakes are one thing. I like totally cool with earthquakes because you vaguely know what to expect. You know what's going to happen. You hope, hope, hope that it'll clear out a lot of the riffraff that tends to move to Los Angeles. And um, But with this, I mean, I've got friends that are good people. They're just like, fuck this crap. I, you know, it's like the people suck. Everything's expensive. And now half the city's burned up. And it's like, I'm moving back to Oregon. I'm moving back wherever. And it's like, no, please. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, it's very, you know, I haven't had the time to look into uh, speculation about possible suspicious activity, but it was brought to my attention that, uh, you know, when, when we invaded Baghdad, sacked Baghdad in the early 90s, you know, they found documents about setting forest fires in the United States. And, and um, you know, it's not that hard. I mean, there's a guy busted in Van Nuys for setting palm trees on fire. Uh, somebody in Orange County, I believe, and somebody dancing uh, over by Sepulveda trying to light fires. And my, my first thought was literally like, well, you know, that's attempted murder. So therefore, you know, these people deserve, uh, if convicted, possibly the death penalty. You know, I, I really, there's just no... You're a death penalty I mean, supporter? Um, some, well, in a case like this, okay, where you're, okay, if you, if you, whatever your inclination, if you're terrorist adjacent, if you're mentally ill, uh, and you go to an area that's inhabited by people and their houses and animals and, and things of that nature, and you willingly set structures on fire where people are inside, because that happened where I lived a few years ago in West Hollywood. Yeah. If you remember, there was this maniac running around uh, yes. lighting carports on fire. Yeah. And the way the apartment buildings are in West Hollywood, mostly the carport is the first story and the right. second story is the apartments. So you light a carport on fire. If there's anybody in that building, you know, there's a good chance they're going to die. And it turned out to be this mentally ill a kid of German extraction who was angry that his mother was getting deported because um, she'd been committing fraud for decades. You know, fuck that guy. I'm sorry. It's like, you know, people don't deserve to die because you've got some some nebulous beef with the U.S. government. You know, you know, if, if you're willing to do something that may lead to the deaths of total strangers, you know, you should take that into consideration and. You know, I don't mind finding a person here and there. I really don't. I mean, there are too many of them anyway. You yeah, know, well, we could, we could talk about that for two hours, but... Um, yeah, the, yeah. Conversely, conversely, too, it's like I, I've been doing a lot of stuff involving mass killers and people wrongfully convicted of various crimes and in, in the Innocence Project and all right. that stuff. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not an indiscriminate, you know, just 
you know, kill them all. I'm not like Texas death penalty style person, but um, there are some people that just, okay, you're, you're willing to possibly kill complete and total strangers because you're angry or because it gets your jollies off. No, screw you. <laughs> Let's reverse the situation. If, if that's a potential like sentence that a person can get, they might think twice before, you know, they light apartments on fire. With no, they that. wouldn't. If they're crazy, that oh. wouldn't make any difference. Oh, well, crazy, that's a, there's a fine line between truly crazy and plain crazy, and I don't know, sometimes people can cross it and go back. Well, also, <laughs> I think most people that do things like that don't, anything that, any, most people that do anything wrong don't think they're going to get caught. I mean, that's just their, yeah. that's just their mindset, otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't do it. Um, well, do you think they calculatingly think it out and go, okay, I've planned this perfect crime and I'm so arrogant, there's no way I'm going to get caught? Or do you think they just like rush headlong into the criminal activity? Or is it kind I don't, of like I don't know people's mindset. Um, uh, I, I, I think there's plenty of room in the jails for people as long as other stupid things are taken off the books like drug possession and a few other things. Right. Then there'll okay, be plenty of room for these people, and they can do. Th- and they can. Cho- and my idea is, they can choose. Do you want to die, yeah. or do you want to stay in jail the rest of your life? If they say kill me, I say, right. good, fine. And if they don't, they have to do something. They have to clean up. They have to, you know, do oh, some yeah. kind yeah. do some kind of work every day. They can't just sit there. Right. Anyway, oh, that, well, that's I'm, you know that's that's my you, crazy right wing idea. <laughs> well, it was, it, no, that's not that right wing. In fact, I mean, there's been a thing called. Unicor, which is a coalition of private prison industries uh, that meet every so often, and um, it's basically prison labor. So you know, you get these stories of like, uh, you know, there was a, a yeah. You have to be careful about telephone. that. Pardon? You have to be careful about that because people can be exploited very easily. And I don't care if people in prisons get oh. exploited; no big deal. But it's uh, for a lot of things. It's it's basically you know. Uh, I don't know. You know. I guess they get a salary. I have no idea. But it, the, the, no, the prison no, no, no. labor it's thing is any, very is uh, is uh, fr- is a minefield of uh, to me. It's a minefield of um, uh, possible corruption. Oh my god! Are you joking? I mean, because one of those main selling points Unicor has to corporations or companies in the United States is that if you sign in to be part of this, uh, you know, devil's pact, uh, you can claim that each worker that you've got working for us for pennies in the dollar is a, a job that you have kept in the United States. So you can look at a product that says made in the USA and you, can, you don't know if that means, you know, made for, you know, one half of one cent for 60 hours a week in sweatshop conditions by somebody that's in, in jail in Florida for, you know, a petty, you know, car theft or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, they're, they're, my favorite story about this was um, when Jeb Bush was governor of Florida, uh, these airline workers went on strike, the people that take reservations over the phone, right? Who get paid like 20 bucks an hour or something like I mean, it's pretty decent salary for what they were doing. And uh, Jeb Bush is like, oops, no problem. Let's just uh, use these prison laborers that are in this particular class, not thinking as the governor nor any of the people under him that all these criminals are going to have access to people's, you know, uh, driver's license info, credit card info, home information, addresses, all of that stuff. It took them literally like three months before somebody, it dawned on them going, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. <laughs> you know, we're saving lots of money. American Airlines is, you know, four cents versus eighteen forty-five an hour. Uh, but, you know, maybe this is not such a good idea. But that just illustrates 
yeah. the idiocy of <laughs> certain political you, dynasty. I you know. had me um, ca- capitalize Fordian when I when I, and I, I changed it, uh, which is fine. Um, and one of my questions is, and most people don't even think about this: what is a Fordian? What the hell is a Fordian? Everybody says I'm a Fordian, or this is Fordian times, or whatever. But yeah. and I've no, got actually, certain ideas about it. What's your idea about it? I'm sure we have like a complete agreement on it. You're right. No. Well, usually, uh, what is a Freudian is someone who has to explain very quickly that they're not a Freudian because <laughs> nine times out of ten, that's always been the response that that I get. But um, yeah, yeah, I've heard you that know, one. You just, oh God, it's it's not, no, not Freud. I prefer Jung. Thank you. Freud was a, a pervert cokehead who didn't understand women. But um, <laughs> what what is a Freudian? Hmm, I, what is a Fordian? I mean, it's one of those those things where it's like you could be a member and not even realize it. I, I think maybe the name Charles Fort or the term Fortean has just increased in, if not popularity, then at least recognition in the last number of years because a lot of people just throw it around right. the way I used to throw it around, which is to say, hey, I'm somebody who's um, keenly interested in a bunch of different most likely interconnected phenomena, natural and unnatural. Um, but basically, basically, it's somebody that, I mean, the, the best way to characterize somebody who thinks like a 14 is somebody who keeps their mind open, but not so open that their brains fall out. Yeah, As, my definition so would be a non-believer. Right, yeah, well, you're not dogmatic about anything. Yeah. You know, you're, you, you, you do not have the answers. I mean, it's a very agnostic Right. I mean, that's a great word. That's a great, yeah. Agnostic. That's a great analogy. Or, I'm sorry, uh, synonym, agnostic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I myself am not agnostic. I, I think we humans are really arrogant and have absolutely no clue about anything. And in, in, in not just the realm of the psychic, ufological, paranormal phenomena, but pretty much everything, we have no fucking answers, obviously. It's like, oh my God, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I could point my compass in any direction and just say, we're wrong here, we're wrong here, we're wrong here, or certain factions of us as a species are wrong, and they are screwing it up for everybody else, and it's just, it, it, you know, it keeps reaching this breaking point, um, and I go, I can't get any worse. I can't get any stupider. It can't get, uh, Jerusalem is now the capital, really? Okay, so you're screwing it up for the Palestinians, you dumb, big, fat, fucking Cheeto face mother who's probably going to go to prison. I hope if there's any justice, but we might not even know because very soon we might not even have the ability to read the news we want to read on the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, you know, I, I've had a lot of friends, and I, I could go on about what defines a 40 and sense of humor very much needs a sense of humor. You have to have a sense of humor as, I think, a coping mechanism to deal with the absurdity that you're bombarded with on a daily basis. And it wasn't any different in Charles Ford's time, you know, who died in 1932, most likely of leukemia, um, who burnt the manuscripts of his first number of books, and only because followers of his sort of not, like, anti-ideology uh, were so enamored uh, by his writing and his 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 philosophy that they forced their own publishers to publish his books. Um, that was Tiffany Thier. Yeah. Um, but but you know it's it's he's like the ultimate. 
I don't know if anti-hero is the right term. I mean, it seems like he suffered from depression. He suffered from a lot of things. He, he obviously had a bouquet of mental quirks. If you if you look into um, if you look into the shorthand that he used that he invented to take notes from the decades of journals and newspapers and scientific magazines that he read around the world. Um, but but the integration of of material. I mean, he coined so many terms that are still used: teleportation, fireball. Uh, it's the thing that led up to what later became called flying saucers, UFOs, UAPs, whatever the hell you want to call them. Um, I mean, and and I hate to admit this, but I will because I'm kind of delirious. He is really hard to read. That's that's one thing I don't think I've ever heard anybody say because I actually never heard anybody discuss. Well, Jim Stanemeyer wrote a biography of Charles Fort, so he talked about Fort a little bit, but um, he's really, really hard to read. He kind of invented his own sort of proto-beatnik stream of consciousness style of writing that is really hard to read. It's really hard to read. I will admit it. You know, I had to force myself here and there in my life to like sit down and okay today you're going to read 20 pages uh, like like the AA big book or the bible kind of like a like it's a, a you know an assignment you have to undergo you know because um well, you have to lower yourself in slowly, like a like a bathtub and a, and a hot bath. And the other thing is, you have to kind of. Yeah. It's like reading. Um, what can I? I know it's like reading uh, uh, Clockwork Orange, like reading Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange, or maybe um, uh, uh, Ulysses or something like that. You have to kind of get used to the language, and then once you right. once you've you, once you're on that wavelength, it's a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Fort does that. And the other thing I notice about Fort is while I'm reading him. And this is kind of like mm-hmm. James Joyce too. I start laughing, and I don't even know why. It's the the humor is amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, it's just his his observations. Uh, it, 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 the words the words he chooses are so densely packed with meaning that their his writing and his writing style is almost separate. From the phenomena that he writes about, right. that's the thing that's amazing. I don't it's, know. It's its own Freudian phenomenon. It's like it's almost like oh oh okay I've got this philosophical point that I'm making and look at the absurdities of this that the other oh and by the way here are 20 examples of falls of uh, blood uh, coins fish around the world uh, going back you know pinpointing all these different places all these different time periods all these different cultures that experienced a permutation of a phenomena that still isn't explained. It's uh, it's amazing. I I don't I don't know how he did it. I honestly don't. And I I I guess you can get it now in um, like a print on demand form. But Charles Ford did have one published novel. He actually wrote ten that we know of, but he only had one published, and it's called The Outcast Manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And it's it's. It's very witty. I've only read it once. I've read it in the the, um, the library copy they have at, at USC, the white gloves and everything. And I had to write it. I had to read it in one sitting. And I took notes on these note cards that are away in some file somewhere. But but it was incredibly clever. It was is set in a in a mail order business that that you know is led by a huckster and everybody's desperate and desperate for money. And it's like wow. Okay, so. The turn of the last century mentality of the average person really isn't any different than the, the bull crap 
job titles people have nowadays, you know, with the internet. And it's like, okay, or online retailing, it's not even the same thing, but it's just that the desperation and the absurdity and the marketing and the gimmicks and the bull crap. It's like, ugh. God, we are so boring. I can't believe that <laughs> so little has changed. Um, right. But but it's like really contemporary. You know, if somebody if somebody just took that book and rewrote it with a contemporary parlance and and you know setting, um, it, it might do really really well. It'd be like David Foster. Well, well I don't even know. I don't yeah. read fiction, but I, I, you know, some very very clever <laughs> fiction writer. I will. Um, I will. I've got my copy of um, um, not Low. What do I have? Yes, Low from 1931. My, f- I've got a first printing of Low, and I will read. Oh. Let me read like two paragraphs just to tell you what Skyler's talking about. Chapter two: Frogs and fishes and worms, and these are the materials of our expression upon all things. Hops and flops and squirms, and these are the motions. But we have been considering more than matter and motion to start with. We have been considering attempts by scientists to explain them. By explanation, I mean organization. There is more than matter and motion in our existence. There is an organization of matter and motion. Nobody takes a little clot that is central in a disease germ as absolute truth. And the latest scientific discovery is only something for ideas to systematize around. But there is this systematization or organization, and we shall have to consider it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a I love that like couplet to start the chapter worms and squirms and yeah yeah no he had an amazing power of the language too I mean just mm-hmm. beautiful just beautiful yeah I uh, I um, was given this little uh, necklace it's little fairies and a little glass vial with a stopper and it and it, it has this like blue sand and I guess it belonged to someone that was close to someone and uh, I'm, I'm i'm very grateful but uh, the first all i could think was i'm gonna dump that sand out and i'm gonna get to albany you know and kiss yeah. it with charles graveder and in the interim my best next option is uh the grave of maria rasputin because i've, I've been looking at her um, autobiography which is really what an amazing lady oh my god um you know i'm a, a fan of rasputin and apparently people have trouble with this this conception of somebody that the press got all wrong, all got halfway wrong. And he was really difficult to kill and all that stuff. But he was also a very well-known animal communicator uh, during his time um, with the the, the Tsar's family. And even before that, when he was just wandering kind of crazy (laughs) as a quote-unquote monk. But um, so I actually, I have this little animal rescue concern that hopefully will someday turn into something that helps more than it does now, but it's called Rasputin Rescues. Not Rasputin's apostrophe S, but Rasputin, just the concept of this guy that can live through anything and bullets and being, you know, strangled and poisoned. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I, I wish that was the case for every pit bull in this damn country of ours that is so wrong and so backward. So and that's my little aside, but Maria Rasputin, his, his daughter, the only who who joined the circus, not in Moscow as it turned out, but in uh, London as a lion tamer. She defected to Los Angeles in uh, the late sixties and then died in Los Angeles in nineteen seventy seven. Unfortunately, a few months after my birthday, but ah. that's okay. <laughs> yeah, you do. You ever wonder? Like, there was a time when I thought I was. Um, Oh God, not Alexander Pope. Uh, 
uh, Ray, Ray Palmer. There was this period of time at some point in my past where I was like, well, he was kind of a midget and he had a back deformity and, and, you know, and you just make these wild leaps and then you think about it later and you're like, wow, you really go to great lengths to amuse yourself, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. Furthering the the uh, Fordian thing, I I don't know why I did a stream of consciousness um, list of questions, and my next okay. one, weirdly enough, is: Do you believe in any fixed ideas or just methods? <laughs> ah, um, I don't know that I even believe in any methods. I mean, because those would be, I would think, they would not stand the test of all eternity, you know, okay, well, this, this method that we've come, we've used in this scientific arena to come to these conclusions may not be viable in a hundred years, or what if the poles slip, or what if gravity changes, or, um, I, I don't think, I think everything is... I meant methods uh, of thought, I guess, or ways of getting at something, not like, we must use Uh, this method forever, uh, I I think I I worded it wrong, sorry. (laughs) No, 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 that's okay, um... I I I think humor is important. <laughs> uh, I really pretty much above all else because um, you know some days I think oh I I could be am I dying is it leukemia is it is it ulcers is it a brain tumor that's forming I'm not aware of what is slowly killing me you know uh, because I spend so much time. Um, just out of necessity, like going towards negative things because you have to, because it's like, well, well, this is the reality as it stands right now or as, as it's presenting itself that I have to deal with. Um, I better have a goddamn sense of humor about it because if, if you don't, I mean, you know, politics aside and, and all that, um, uh, you know, my, my mom, I remember, when I was a kid, I, I complained once about not having anything, and my mother's a little uh, colorful, and and she said very matter-of-factly that, well, you know, you're lucky you have a bed. You know, three-quarters of the world sleep on bamboo mats, and which is not true, you know, because at <laughs> least, okay, if you're living in poverty, you're living on your regional poverty, you know, mat of whatever, cow dung or whatever the hell, you know, so, but, but the point was, like, you know, why aren't you grateful for what you have? And, and I, it just, I don't know. She, she probably had a lot to do with my coping mechanisms of humor, uh, needing, needing them, I guess, I guess, but, you know, but, um, you know, well, humor is important. If you can't think obliquely in a way that's actually kind of silly, you get caught in, you get caught in, uh, uh, going round and round in circles in your head. So hopefully, oh hopefully humor yeah. breaks you out of that circle so you can come, you yeah. know, and come at it from another, um, a, a, another uh, uh, angle, and hopefully, you know, have a, some creative solution or be able to handle it or whatever. Right. Did you see the um, the Jim Carrey uh, uh, Andy Kaufman documentary? No. Oh, oh, the documentary. Oh, yes, of course, yes, of course. Yeah, and, and um, I don't remember it too well. I remember him going to the Philippines for cancer treatment. No, no, the, um, the documentary about oh, it that no, just oh, came out. I don't, honestly, right now, I don't know if I did or didn't. It's I, the one I, about Jim Carrey that. being, uh, it's uh, it's an interview with Jim Carrey with his big, like, uh, his big Jesus beard, talking about what it was like to work on the film, 
what uh, what happened to him during the film, other people, you know, that were working with him uh, and what they thought of what was going on. And um, it, it, it's a fascinating film. I mean, the, he basically yeah. says he was possessed by Andy Kaufman during the during the uh, making yeah. of the film. And the weird th- there's a really weird scene that freaked me out. Well, of, of many in that movie. But he goes on stage filming a segment as if he's on Saturday Night Live, I think. And Andy mm-hmm. Kaufman's real brother and father are standing in the in the to the side of the set watching. Um, he runs oh, off the oh. stage and goes and hugs them. Right, and they wow. hug him back. Well, I mean, they they, they, they didn't get would... freaked out. They the, the, his brother what? actually said it's so strange being around Jim doing this. It's like being around Andy. Really, truly, it is. It's, he somehow is um, acting did, just like did, Andy did. did. Did Jim know that they were who they were, or were they just two random people on set? I think he, he had. Like, I think over. he had met them, um, mm. but they didn't say anything. I mean, I don't. They didn't say anything yeah. about no. He'd never met them before, and he just recognized them because he was channeling Andy. So uh, no, I th- uh, I would think that he met him before. There's scenes of him talking to Milos Forman, and he he said, "Well, you know, Jim, we have to do this," and he says, "Jim isn't here. I don't know what you're talking about." Oh wow. Well, I mean, I think it's uh, temporary possession is entirely plausible. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like you're believe whatever you believe about, you know, okay, you're born, you die, that's it. But if you look at, at it from a scientific standpoint, you know, I think the human being is it, made up of at least some amount of energy and you know, according to Einstein, you know, once energy is created, it, it can never be destroyed. It can be dissipated. It can be moved. It can do Matter. a whole bunch of things. But um, Matter, you know, not energy. So, you know, who's to say that, you know, the, the little uh, the little whatever essence of Andy Kaufman didn't in, end up inhabiting Jim Carrey, who I guess is having a lot of, getting a lot of, uh, guff today because he's thinking outside the box or whatever. I just I heard about it from my my landlord friend. And, yeah. uh, I, as I said know, to a I, friend of mine, he's gotten off the give a shit carousel. Oh, which it sounds great. You know, I kudos to him. I just wish people wouldn't be unnecessarily uh, cruel or mean or possessive of people they think because okay this person's in the spotlight or has been there so I'm going to get on my soapbox and just be a jerk for no reason because he may be talking about concepts that are too heady for me to understand or grasp you know but then you look at the nature of his comedy and you go well you know, <laughs> it's like who I, I mean I, I, I only saw most of Jim Carrey's movies uh, by proxy because somebody else wanted to watch them you know and I go, oh, okay well I put this in the memory bank for you file it away for whatever but you know that physical comedy that, yeah well um, I don't know if he's a comedy genius or anything a physical comedy yes they asked him at one point you know why did you do the comedy you did and he said at one point I was doing my act or doing this stuff and I for some reason I got this flash that people don't People want to be able to forget what the hell's going on for a little while, and it's my job to help them do that, to forget whatever's bothering them. His job was to entertain them, and so he said that became my all-consuming passion at a certain point. I think when he started, before he even started doing uh, stand-up, or while he was doing stand-up, he realized everybody's standing here, everybody's sitting here in this club staring at me, and they want to be able to be possessed by this thing that I'm doing. So that's what drove his humor. 
So, so then it could be said that Jim Carrey is actually a great humanitarian <laughs> and providing a valuable service to the human race. You know, I mean, if you look at it that way, yeah. um, as opposed to going after whatever it is, comics usually go after whatever that is. I, I you know, <laughs> but I would think I would think that that's that would drive a lot of people that become entertainers, or I would hope so because that's a that's a kind of pretty idealistic, you know, but. Yeah, I, I mean, know. this is what he said. I don't know what he's actually thinking, but that it just seemed to you know, it, it's it, it was just interesting to see inside his head, and that the fact that his humor was based on escape, while other people's humor is based on, um, you know, something that I like, something that points out to you how ridiculous everything is, like like a like a George Carlin or a or a um, or, a, or a Bill Hicks or a uh, Lenny Bruce or something like that. But there's all kinds of different humor, and you shouldn't, you know, I don't know which kind to look down upon. I do not like uh, what prop-based humor. It really bothers me, but. <laughs> it's, uh, I, are there any people that do that? I mean, Carrot Top Gallagher, and I have no idea. I was happy to hear that Maria Bamford is on the second season of some television program because I, I uh, you know, I didn't watch television as a kid, and, until, um, I, I, but I realized, oh, uh, cultural touchstones and people uh, operate in this sort of communication by shorthand of pop cultural references. It's a thing that's been going on for a long time, and I find it really abhorrent. But it's a, it's like, oh, well, if you've never seen this or never seen, I had to take somebody to see movie CK for their birthday, and I was so incensed by the end of it and, and the coarseness of his humor that I left to have a cigarette. And this is like at the forum. <laughs> and uh, when was this? Texting. Oh God, was it July? Not last year. Um, recently, the last couple years, um, it was a birthday present. And, uh, but I ended up writing this huge rant on um, Tim Minchin's uh, website about being so annoyed to having to sit through Louis C.K. routine. You know, and Tim Minchin's a comic genius. He's Australian, but he lives here. And, you know, a Tony Award-winning music, musical writer, blah, 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 whatever. But um, he's, uh, he's fantastic. Um, I've heard of him. But, I also uh, really like CK. I've liked him from the beginning, and I'm sorry you found him annoying. But may, I was thinking, is that with hindsight, or did, were you annoyed at the time? I guess you were annoyed at the time. I, I, I was. Well, I was just kind of like sitting through this show, kind of like, okay, well, this is a birthday present, so there's absolutely not anything, you know. And it's like I've right. seen a couple episodes of his sitcom, and it's like, oh, the everyman kind of bullshit. Okay. This really relates. To, I can really relate to this. I can't relate to any of it. I can't relate to most things. I, I, um, it's a, amazing that I made it this far. <laughs> it is. I, there's a there's a listener question from Jeff who takes his name spelled like Jeff the Talking Mongoose, G E F. So I love oh, that. Okay. Uh, if, oh, okay. Here's the question: If Ms. Alvagrin could go back in time and transfer her interest in Fortiana to something more profitable, like computer programming, programming or engine repair, would she do it? <laughs> oh Jesus! Um, profitable. Well, if by profitable you mean even subsistence level living, <laughs> yeah. Um, possibly. If if only if I could. Uh, not lose the focus on my studies and research uh, into whatever you want to call it, the nature of reality and what's really going on. But I mean, you know, my my own grandfather who died 
before I was born, uh, and, and sounds like an absolutely fascinating guy. He was a self-taught architect who decades before anybody had the concept, or maybe a few people did, he had the idea of uh, drawing power from the sun. And, you know, I may have mentioned this to you before, but it's it's really amazing. He had his own little company in his garage, and he was taken to court by his employers for making this panel, but they didn't want the concept of the panel, of solar panel. They wanted the design of the screen that it sat on, right? And so, you know, but he, you know, I mean, he didn't, I don't know, profitable. I mean, like, what's profitable? Like, I mean, I'd like to be comfortable. I'm very rarely comfortable. You know, if I, could I, think, I think he does mean comfortable and, you know, being able to survive and not have to scrape for everything like you do when you're, uh, when you're usually when you're a working writer. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be nice not to have to do that. But if I could, if I could, if I could take any of the things I've learned and synthesize them into something useful, it would hopefully be for the benefit of the benefit of the planet. I'm not even going to say humanity. I don't really have too much faith in quote unquote humanity, but the benefit of this living ball that we're on, uh, you know, if I could do things, do something to stop, to stave or slow the, um, rush towards doom that this species seems to be hell-bent on, um, I would be very, very happy to do that. You know, you know, uh, a perpetual motion machine or, you know, cold fusion or <laughs> any of those things. I'd love to get my hands on, on something like that, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... Uh... But you, Everybody does their little bit in, in whatever they... In, and if they've got their, you know, their pr- priority, like... Um, if they have their compassion bones straight, um, whatever you do kind of flows from that. And it's, you know, pe- people can pick up on that. Um, there's not a lot of people I know that even, well, actually all my friends have the compassion bone in place. It, it I can tell, otherwise they wouldn't be my friends. But you can see so much of it where people don't understand that there's other people. Um, they all have feelings. They all are in the, mostly in the same struggle that you are. And it's it's hard to it's hard to remember that, especially when you're being told from above that you have to get above all these people and and win and all that other stuff. It's 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 frightening. Um, seems like these these life lesson uh, philosophical questions come up a lot on this show, and seem, people seem to enjoy it. So that's why I don't I don't ever pull people back into discussion of weird stuff if we're going in that direction, which is fine. I saw on your site. Um, and I forgot you told me this, that you had a UFO sighting at the space shuttle landing. I was at that space shuttle landing, and I didn't see Dick. So what did you see? You were. You were. Oh, my God. Okay. I mean, we're talking 1988. Yeah. I okay, still have the pass from it. It's 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 framed. Oh, serious? Yeah. I still have it. It says first landing of the space shuttle NASA Dryden Space Center on it. Okay. Because um, I, I actually wrote a column for UFO magazine some years ago just hoping that somebody would read this article and go, I was there. I saw that too. But, um, no, okay. If you remember, okay. So it was the first shuttle landing after the challenger disaster, right? Which oh, like, okay. Then this is know. different. I saw the first shuttle uh, landing ever. Oh, well, so this is how different. Would I so, be able to do that? <laughs> then, I mean, yeah, oh, I you're right. Okay, you're right. Because well, you said the first shuttle landing, and I was thinking, well, maybe you saw it when you were a kid. But I saw it. But oh, no, no, no. This wasn't after the no, Challenger. No, my, okay, this is a different my one. First sighting was at a space shuttle landing. What'd you so, see? Um, and okay, so this is okay. So the Challenger disaster happened 
I was like 86. It took like two years before NASA got another space shuttle mission up and running. Mm-hmm. And I believe it left from Cape Canaveral. I think it was Florida that it left from. It was like 18-day mission, something like that. But of course, you know, this was like a big rallying rah, 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 America, we're back in space. Not not like, oh, we're number one. It was just kind of like, look, we haven't been defeated. It's kind of way yeah. I, I looked at it. My, um, my eyes a little kid, and I'd been reading about UFOs and stuff since I was like five, six years old. I mean, really, really young. Mm-hmm. And so I was really on my mother's Yes, I know. Me too. To, to, <laughs> yeah, right. I, every library book, you know, you yep. can get with yep. the library card. No, um, no wonder we're but, friends. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> my... My, my, yeah, but my mother, um, I was very adamant that I, I thought it was important that we witness this space shuttle land because and it was happening at Edwards Air Force Base. I was in, you know, LA general, <laughs> generalness of Los Angeles. And so it was, you know, not a very far drive. Yeah. So we did what hundreds of people did, which was come up the night before and they let the public camp out in their cars along the tarmac or on a certain route of the, the landing strip, right? And it was really festive atmosphere. And um, my mother and I were parked in front of a pickup truck of off-duty Air Force kids, like, you know, early, you know, whatever, 20, 20-year-old guys that, that were just hanging out yeah. on this pickup truck waiting to watch the landing, too. And, it, and the landing was, you know, so I was sleeping in the cars. And a couple of hours before that, this red light started hurtling down from space. Just this red light. I don't remember it much because I was half asleep. But it came hurtling down from space. There wasn't that much commotion. Most people were asleep. And it just came down and it stopped dead roughly over where the shuttle was supposed to land. And just hung there for a few seconds, 10 seconds. And it shot straight back up into space. Okay, which... You know, I'm saying, I'm 11. I'm talking about hundreds of people. I was like aware of the of the magnitude of this event, but then one of the kids in the pickup truck said that was no motherfucking military aircraft. Just said it out like that, and I'm like, okay, so I'm I'm going in the path that's much more interesting than a lot of the other things that could be going down at the age of 11. Um, so, but I I mean, there were hundreds of people there. I don't remember them saying anything. I don't remember, uh, you know, anybody making a statement or going car to car asking anybody what they saw or anything like that. I, nothing happened, and the shuttle landed like it was scheduled to. But um, I, I, I know there's somebody else out there on the planet that was there, whatever age they were, that was awake at that time. And um, what's interesting is, um, you know, I, I work occasionally for this uh, company in in. England and the head of this company did a bunch of UFO documentaries some years back and we've had some interesting conversations about the nature of these red lights because uh, I won't go into details, a little technical, but like, oh, they should be blue. That's Why were they red? They should have been blue. And um, I actually just don't have the scientific wherewithal to explain right now uh, why they should have been blue but not red, and not red. But I recently went to see. Um, Who said they should be blue and not red? What? What? Where does that come from? This, this is a person who who made some some very interesting UFO documentaries in, in previous years for the BBC and other places. 
So he's uh, okay. He's researcher, producer, director. I can't, well, it, I didn't get a chance to talk to him before uh, before this because uh, the time difference. I mean, I told my uncle to try to listen, and oh, this is great. My uncle, who's a Catholic priest for 20 years, now is a chanting Buddhist, was in charge of the boats at Disneyland for a decade, is a very spiritual and interesting man. Every time I see him now, or I I get a text message from him, first he was telling me to uh, watch certain David Icke videos, and then I saw him recently, and and, uh, he was going down some extremely loopy and esoteric path that I was just like smirking to myself like wow why weren't we talking 10 15 years ago and that's right like, and and then I got a text message for him about Jordan Maxwell and then he pointed out you know, Jordan Maxwell started with your man fort and I'm like oh my goodness I have a stack of notebooks that's like half a foot high of all the times I've Jordan still speak over the years, and um, it's just weird how things come around in yeah. a circle sometimes. Uh, you know, Ford got the famous thing one measures a circle beginning anywhere, and you know, it's actually open to some interpretations. But, um, you know, I do believe that things are connected, and things are connected in ways that we don't comprehend. Um, we just don't comprehend. Maybe we will someday. Yeah, Maybe somebody, I don't know. Somebody brought up, um, I can't remember. It was on online recently on Facebook. I think on the on the Ready Mysterioso page. But they were talking about. Um, oh, that was it. I found an article that was uh, they, where, uh, and I don't know how accurate it is, but the the upshot of the article was there was some research, supposedly some research that was done that emotions could affect the the movement of atoms in some way in a, in, in uh, experiments and where they should be random. And the the first thing I thought of was when I interviewed Dean Radin in 1995 or six, he said that um, when they're doing experiments, and this is for remote viewers too, that if something had an emotional or you know personal connection to you, it's a lot easier to get a good result out of it. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, maybe because emotion and meaning is a dimension, which has always stuck with me since then. Wait, emotion and meaning is what? Is a dimension, just like height, width, time, all that other stuff. Uh, Meaning. Meaning is a dimension, he said. Which I thought was amazing, and it makes makes a lot of sense. You know, why do people see dead relatives or whatever it is? Because they have a or, or know when they're dying or when they're in trouble, whatever they have an emotional connection to them. Or you know, why were the remote viewers told you know when they first did their experiments um, in? Um, not coordinate, but uh, I believe it was. Eh, I can't remember the method. But what they did at first is what they, you know they they have them do the the viewing, and then they would take them to the spot where they mm-hmm. where they you know where they were supposed to be queuing in on, and the the mm-hmm. the point was that they would transcend the time because the meaning would be there of them knowing in the future somehow because the time wouldn't be around mm-hmm. any that the meaning was not subject to the time flow it was you see this thing it you you it's shown to you and somehow that connection that personal connection that oh yeah okay that would help them in their viewing so that was a more concrete version of meaning being a dimension right right oh, that's very interesting that's very interesting that's definitely something to consider I've been listening on YouTube now uh, to lectures about information theory, and my most interesting thing that I'm getting out of it is that, as in quantum physics, um, that the, about the observer effect to the point where a really radical observer effect is described, which is that 
uh, information. I mean, uh, atoms and 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 in uh, electrons and photons and I'm sorry, electrons and and muons and quarks and all that are not the basis of reality. Information is, and the mm-hmm. fact that we interact with the information creates matter in a certain way, in a very crude way of describing it. So that that's really fascinating me right now. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's uh, bringing to mind not exactly the same thing, but when I first heard about um, a Japanese scientist, Dr. Omoto, and his oh yeah, the, the, the water, water guy, yeah. And like decades ago, it was like you know you infuse this inanimate substance with emotion or some kind of convey beauty or convey hatred, and even this non-living, supposedly non-living substance will re- react, uh, you know, in a sensitive manner. I mean, I might have to think about this a little bit more. <laughs> when, when things get, uh, you know, when things get weird, I've got this idea right now that a strange thing is a lot more malleable in reality than a not strange thing, if that makes any sense. Like, if you see Bigfoot or something in the woods or a ghost or whatever, that is a lot different than seeing a car wreck or your breakfast in front of you or whatever. Because these things are, I think at that point, your brain is a lot more involved in whatever that's, that's, and not in perception, but in Uh exactly what that thing is in whatever you want to call it. If if somebody else, you know, you, you are truly co-creating that thing as it happens, the stranger it is and the more off-schedule it is, if that makes any sense. Right, right. Well, it's like, um, you know, it's witness testimony for some horrific crime uh, is it, 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 so suspect because... You yeah, know, even because at that level, yeah. That, but, you know, that, you know you're, you're experiencing something, you see somebody brutally murdered, um, it happens quickly. It's like your brain copes with it. Is it coping with it? And that makes it not perhaps remember the details correctly. I mean, I know I'm pretty sure I've not intentionally, but edited myself or certain unpleasant experiences in my life so that I remember them differently. Mm-hmm. You know, did yeah. I do that consciously or did that just happen? Was some, was my brain trying to, uh, do a manual override and and uh, make it more livable. I don't. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Um, well, your your mind, I think, forms whatever your memory is into something that is is comprehensible to you. Not something that makes you feel better or anything like that, but something that makes, even if it's horrible sense, makes sense to you. And so you will remember the thing that makes sense. There's another thing, a theory about. Um, uh, memories is that they are they're not memories of what happened they're memories of how you coped with whatever it was or how you perceive them right yeah but perceive them because you could have perceived where the way you perceived it five minutes after it happened is is could be and probably is quite different than you perceive it uh you know five minutes later ten minutes later or even more importantly ten years later um, depending, and especially on who you tell about it, who talks to you about it, what their motivations are, what your motivation is, what happens to you, happens to you later. 
I don't think that uh, that uh, a, a memory is a is a, a thing that is um, it is very plastic. It can be formed by all kinds of different things. And th- it, th- this is not me making a guess. I've been you know there's a lot of literature from um, people that are doing uh, memory research, including and I brought her up and, and Miles Lewis got very mad at me. Elizabeth Loftus from UCLA, I believe, who was part of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation people, um, which that, that's a whole nother discussion, but. Um, the fact that that memories can be changed um, by the person remembering it, by the person telling other people about it, and more importantly and frighteningly, by people asking them questions about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, of course, of course. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I, you know, if I wanted a, an accurate telling of a, a scene or a situation that is fraught with emotion or meaning or importance, I would much rather uh, talk to a machine and get the story from the machine to actually get the truth <laughs> as opposed to. <laughs> and in, invariably, you're going to put a spin on it, on, on whatever you go through. And, and by seeing the spin, I don't mean like an angle, but you, you know, you're going to explain having witnessed something or gone through something or being part of something at, from the way that you see it, <laughs> you know, um, and, and not even in a way that's intentionally deceptive. So, um, no, no, it's but, just uh, it's subject to, you know, uh, later uh, uh, influences, uh, whether interior yeah. or externally, or most likely and mo- most certainly a, a combination of both. Have you seen any other? I mean, speaking of uh, seeing weird stuff, interpreting it, um, I think I've only heard about the space shuttle landing thing. I think you also told me about something you saw, like above some phone lines or something, when you were real little, a, a strange shape floating above power or phone lines. <laughs> um, I hope that was you. See, now we're making up memories. Wow! No, um, I did, no the. God, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I, I think I always, um, I don't know. I mean, I was never told no. I was never told that's not possible. I was never told, you know, oh, stop being so. You know, my, I grew up with somebody who who spoke in tongues and had visions, and that was just in the family. Oh, okay, yeah. and, you know, so, so like, um, but the the event that happened with the facial landing was important to me because it verified. This stuff that I don't. I did. A, I did a bad thing when I was a kid. I, I conscious con, made a conscious effort to not have memories. I think because I was very unhappy, and so if I look back on my childhood, I only remember a handful, literally a handful of things. Mm. Oh, that Fourth of July parade, or that Easter, or um, this thing with my friend Dana, whatever. Um, very few memories. I mean, I remember running away from home when I was. Five. I mean, that's like not fun, but um, but I but the, the event that happened when I was eleven was important to me in that it verified that what I if 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 I hadn't actually seen anything weird, I already I, it verified that I I was not wrong to think that oh maybe the guy that hung himself in the apartment building that my mother managed uh, maybe he did actually come through and and talk to us after he committed suicide. I have a vague memory of, hmm. you know, he also haunted his furniture that I ended up with. That kind of thing. It's like, um, but it was the space of the landing that was so concrete for me in that here's this thing that people around me, around me cannot explain. But but I bring this up also because 
you know, I went to see his name is T.L. Keller. He's a Lockheed Martin employee for many years um, out in Lancaster. And uh, this is a talk you went and saw recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and what what I it, he he was he was basically hypothetically uh, explaining how if there was a U.S. secret space program, how physically it, it could be viable that it could be built, right? I mean, so really no nuts and bolts kind of stuff. But at the same time, at the end of it, he's like, "Well, I'm using a lot of material from Corey Good," but he, he pointed out, "I was very happy you did." He's like, "But." Corey Good to be a victim of some kind of mind control program. This is all hypothetical. And I was really happy he pointed that out. But then afterwards, I pulled him aside. You know, he spent a lot of time up in Lancaster and uh, out, out in those facilities, skunk works and everything. And I, and I explained to him what happened at the space shuttle landing. And, and my bubble was burst a little bit because, you know, basically what he was trying to say was that whatever it was that I saw and all these people saw could very well have been our own craft. That was just doing some test run thing because things are that weird and uh, secretive and ahead of what we know them to be, you know, as the average Joe thinking about NASA or the Space Administration or whatever. Who is so, this that like, said I, that again? His name is, uh, he goes by the initial P.L. Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R, mm-hmm. and I've got his talk on the uh, DVD and um, the group. Uh, it, it's like MUFON that went rogue years ago, and it's really great. Oh, yeah, UPARS. More involved. Yeah, I know. The darn acronym I just... But they have really good... Yeah. They've got really good... Yeah, Steve, Steve Marillo uh, runs it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but um, but I've got... I think the talk's already up on like their YouTube page, whatever. Oh, I'd like but to it's see just it. really interesting because he does make the point that he's like, well, that I'm working on a hypothetical, you know, the Corey Good model of what the secret space program is. And there's a, a little bit of time where I used a slide from his talk. It's like my Facebook banner photo. And it's basically the federations of good and bad extraterrestrials and humans and this nefarious corporation that's working off planet and there's tons of humans that are working as slaves on Mars and as a Floridian and I would think even if I didn't know who Charles Sport was I would sit there and I go well who am I to say that that's not possible if you gave me absolute the other thing about my perspective being a Floridian you give me absolute definitive proof that I can see with my own eyes that this thing cannot be I am going to allow for the possibility that it might be. That's 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 it in a nutshell. I mean, the way I see it, you know, because um, you just can't have any personal attachment. Well, I've never been to Mars. I've never been in, inside of Skunk Works. I can't say what, it, you know, what is true and what isn't true if I haven't experienced it myself. Yeah. So um, true, so, but, but you, yeah, you yeah. Model, like, well, if what this man is saying, and this man could be a victim of some kind of uh, propaganda mind control uh, campaign with the in public to blah blah blah, whatever, um, you know. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's really. I'm so happy that he just made these points, you know. Um, I've noticed um, that recently that um, in academic academia, which I used to say, you know, that academia is not going along with the program and it's a part of the same thing with the media and uh, the power structure and all that. I'm notice- noticing more academics, people that have degrees and all that, especially sociologists um, and some other people and other scientists, uh, other disciplines, they have an academic detachment where they can still listen and not 
um, deny or say somebody's full of crap or whatever. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, that that's great that you can say you can you can sit with a a percipient or somebody you're studying or talking to or whatever, writing about, and you don't pass judgment on their experience. Whether you believe them or not or whatever, they get some of them get to the point where they don't really care whether they believe them or not. They want to know what that person experienced. And I think that's really valuable. Um, and that's a place where you can sit and not have to say, oh, you're full of crap or, oh, I told you to believe it and here's my money. Um, this academic detachment, it's like, look, I'm really going to listen to you because I really think, uh, you know, unless you're unless you're just nasty or you have this desperation for me to believe you or asking me for $100 up front to tell me the secrets of the universe, um, I, it, these people are willing to listen and I'm willing to listen and I, I really like that attitude. Um, without like I said, you don't you, you don't make a decision because then you get more information, and some of it might be valuable. These are very grim times, and I I don't know I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I probably would say the same thing any point in my life, but it's it's there's just this sense of dread permeating uh, everything, like kind of like a film on top of yogurt or something. It's just like, <laughs> okay, well, the yogurt's just sitting there, but, and there's that film, and you don't really notice the film, but it's there, and it's over everything, and it's touching everything, and um, what the hell's going to happen? I mean... <laughs> I have no idea. I, I mean, I told somebody the other day, I'm just waiting to be incinerated, but in the meantime, I'm trying to get some other stuff done and keep my friends aware and all that. I cannot change the minds of people who do not agree with me. It ain't going to happen. But... Um, as long as I can stay aware and active and, you know, do things in a, I am not a person that goes out and yells at people politically. I do stuff without telling people about it, which is why I don't usually talk about it on the show. Um, not that I mind that you bring it up, but it, you know, it's everybody, everybody does the thing that they need to do. And just because I, this one really annoys me when somebody says, you're not doing so-and-so, so you're part of the problem. It's like, are you in my life? Do you know what I right, do? Right. Do you know how I interact with people? Right. Do you know I went right. out and stayed with like five Trump supporters for five days and talked to them and found out how they thought? You didn't do that, so piss off and leave me alone. So oh, that, that, that's, that, there's my rant. <laughs> I feel very bad in one way. Me too. What has to be untold millions of people that sheepishly voted for Trump just because they hated Hillary Clinton or just because they thought, gee, maybe he will improve the economy and really didn't have an opinion one way or the other. Um, they're probably feeling really, really, really stupid. <laughs> you know, no, I had a, so I I had a friend that. say, you know, this, this, um, the, uh, uh, the net neutrality, if they take that away, it's going to screw up my, my business. My whole business is based on, um, people getting to me through the internet, and he voted for Trump. And I said, right. "Well, do you can you see the connection here?" And he said, "Well, maybe it won't happen." It's like, well, I I think yeah. it might. I think it's a, a really good chance that you're gonna you're you know if things go keep going the way they should, and if you believe the worst case scenario, it could. So yeah, I I hadn't I hadn't considered the net neutrality issue from a fiscal t standpoint until it was, it, I heard it on the radio. It was just like a story of this woman who has some YouTube channel where she makes food and it's like, okay, so somebody's going to watch this and then they're going to say, Hey, that's making me hungry for that pizza from that one place that I really like. But they try to order the pizza and they're redirected to Domino's because <laughs> Domino's has a, I mean, that, that was the way it was. Put. So, and it's you like, know what? I mean, for me, 
with just information, it's like, do not restrict my access to information, right. you stupid, fat, corporate, <laughs> capitalist a, uh We had yeah. a, um, a I, I was very frightened the other day because Sigrid lost her um, wedding ring. Um, oh. so we, we have to, we had to replace it and we went, you know, went through the insurance and all that and they're paying for some of it and it, it, you know, it's worked out, but we were talking about it one day. I went to my computer or my phone or something 10 minutes later and there's ads from wedding ring stores and I went, Whoa. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's been like that forever. But, well, but that's the um, first time it happened to me. So I went through all my settings, oh, yeah. turned off all my microphones. We don't have an Alexa or anything like that. And it hasn't happened uh-huh. since. Maybe it was. And plus, you know, oh, two weeks uh-huh. before I'd been looking. So maybe it was a result of that. Right. But just the coincidence of them bringing this, of this coming up on my feed after nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right yeah. after we yeah, talked no. about it, that really bothered it's- me. It's really creepy. I mean, I've noticed that for years, it's mildly subtle. It's worse on Facebook. And it's like, if you do something, some part of the internet, then you use some other platform or some other thing, and your search your search results carry on to that next thing. I, I usually just laugh because it's like, I, I don't respond to advertising. I have no money. Even if I did, I wouldn't be trying to buy shit. <laughs> like you're trying to sell yeah, me. I don't. You know, I don't like, give it information. You know. I give out fake emails to most places unless I'm, you know, unless I'm paying for something or it's like you know my insurance or something like that. And I'm generally left alone. And I'm on the no call list, so most of the time I don't get calls from any anybody. Right. So, but every once right. in a while these things sneak through. You just have to be kind of aware, right. I think. Yeah, no, it's 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 really invasive and creepy. But then at the same time, you go, "Wow, this is the benign end of it. This is the benign end of some nebulous thing, you know, tracking my internet history." At least they're just trying to sell me a cheeseburger. They're not, you know, trying to influence my thinking and thought processes. So I vote a certain way two years uh, hence. You know, which is right, there's exactly. so much evidence that that actually happened, and it you know it's huge effect on this country. And uh, you know, I don't give a crap about El Franken squeezing someone's butt. I want to know <laughs> stuff that matters. This is killing me. You know, it's like yeah. uh, you know, and the media is still only you know owned by five corporations, and you can the GE is owns uh, what do they own? ABC owns this, owns that. So it's like everything is biased. All this shit is biased. It's like you know, in my bio, I started writing for the Weekly before I could legally drink. And the LA Weekly, back in the day, used to be uh, an important news source. It hasn't been like that for like 15 years because it yeah. changed hands and got more and more corporate. But now it was bought by this faceless bunch of fucks from Orange County that turned out to be attached to some kind of conservative think tank. And so they're not going to pay anybody. Right? It's just, it's insane. I had this huge rant towards the interim editor who I don't even know, just going, wow, you're just like such a losing battle here because it's just got to be remade from the ground up. And all the people that I know that used to work for that paper are independent thinkers, are opinionated, are informed, and yeah. we're all out of jobs. We're all out of jobs because we can't put on a resume that we're, we're proud of ourselves for writing branded content, which, like, a very successful person at that paper, you know, that's her main main thing. Is, oh, I read branded content. So you write advertisements masquerading as 
editorial content because you're a fucking sellout, you stupid. So, you know, so I can be jealous on one hand that she gets to do some travel writing, you know, but I'm like, at what cost? She has no soul. And I'm not going to say Yeah, yeah well, that's the old question. Yeah. For but yeah. it's just, it's like, oh my God, you know, the flow, the, the net neutrality and the, the restricting flow of information, which is already screwed up yeah. as it is, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's a nightmare, but I, I've heard that. Uh, the FCC has gotten more comments from the public on this subject than anything ever. And it was like 23, 23 yes. million. I mean, yes, you know, I sent in mine. <laughs> so, but then I, you know, what the fuck? I mean, is that going to just affect the United States? Fine. Move out of the goddamn United States, which is not united. It's not a dem- democracy. It's not, you know, it's a fucking sham, you know, and, and maybe it takes different ways for people to figure that out. And can, can they organize? Can we organize? Is it too late? I mean, I know so many people that just because, well, they had the means they up and left the United States, you know, like, and they had been planning for that potentiality for, for quite some time. Yeah. But, you know, you know, I had a friend who said, um, you know, if George Bush gets reelected, I'm moving to fucking Germany. I'm never coming back. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And he did. And you wrote a book on becoming an expatriate. And now he's dead, unfortunately, of some weird bone cancer. But um, but it's like all the most, not all, but, you know, the most intelligent people that have worked in writing and, and writing-related fields aren't sellouts. So, therefore, they're they're barely making it. <laughs> you know, it's like I've got two things that... Um, I'm I'm writing you know, because I don't write anymore because it's like I don't you know I don't just there's no joy of writing for me it was always a job it was a job I'm very good at and I'm very 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 no writers like writing edited I was I yeah, was amazed right, to right. find that out when I was when I first started doing it oh no 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 the best quote on this that I've ever heard from anybody ever was you know you ask them oh, do you enjoy writing and they I don't even remember who it was that said this I think they probably stole it they said I enjoy having written. It's yeah, like, you know who said so that? Hmm? You know who said that? I don't. Who said that? Joan Didion. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> who I love as yeah, a writer. That's absolutely perfect. That's absolutely the best way to, to, to put it. But you know, but if if you're writing branded content, you don't get the crap. But the person writing the branded content, you know, has a new car, and I'm sitting here going. Uh, it's like, you know, so I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I personally like, you know, been at this like weird crossroads for a while. Um, and, uh, I don't know. The people that were doing it, they were not well off. They were not, it, it was all basically just for the love of trying to save these, oh. these creatures. Oh. So. Oh, and it's like you, you you cry on a daily basis you know, about stuff you know you can't change and you're going to run into it anyway because it's like once you get in to a small degree, you're in every day and then it just yeah. grows and grows and grows. It's like yeah. this weird organic uh, yeah. cancer that's <laughs> fluffy and, and cute and uh, it's much bigger than that. It's fluffy, like, cute cancer. It's much bigger than that. Yeah, but um, so yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. It's like I... I, I if I'm going to get screwed somehow, I'd rather do it in a way that at least I'm learning something. I mean, oh, but I was saying that I am writing a couple of things for uh, a couple of websites that I'm actually even paid for because I ran into someone who said, you're one of the best writers in Los Angeles and you're just wasting your time. As well, though I they're should right. Have to just write for the joy of writing. I've, it's, it's, I've been doing it for a job since I was 
17. And it's yeah. not that it's like, oh, what a hassle. It's like, no, it really means a lot to me. And if I'm going to agonize over something for days and weeks and pour my soul into it, um, I'm not going to do it for a blog, you know, uh, but then, or it's just, but it's so fucked up. But I am writing a piece on McFerrin, a remembrance of McFerrin, who uh, we all wish to God was still with us. But um, McFerrin was a British anarchist uh, who had some bands in the 60s and 70s in England. He left England uh, because of Margaret Thatcher. He wrote 64 books. I mean, he's just brilliant, brilliant, overall brilliant guy. So I'm going to write a remembrance of it and get paid a little money. And uh, also, I, you know, this person knew that I had inherited the, um, the archives of Mae Brussel that right. John Judge, the conspiracy, the political assassination researcher, um, John Judge. I, I don't know how well any of these people are known, but John Judge um, was a, like the premier Brussels sprout. Mae Brussel was a conspiracy researcher in the 80s, but she was heir to the iMagnon. Uh, uh, department store fortune, and so therefore she could spend a lot of time looking into stuff that mattered. And so she passed away, most likely murdered in some way, what, 20, over 20, 25 years ago. Right. And a lot of the research materials went with John Judge, and, who then passed away, and some people do think that he was assassinated. Um, but they ended up in uh, his girlfriend's museum. She carried on his memory by uh, opening this. Um, Oh, God, it's like the, the Museum of Alternative History or something, but it's in D.C. I don't have it right in front of me, but um, I want to get in touch with this lady because what I have is I, I have not had time to really pull through it. There's a lot of muck, and it's all really dated, but it's like, oh, my God, this giant file on Iran-Contra scandal and, you know, Exxon Valdez and, and, and all this stuff. So it's like I don't know exactly how I'm going to go about uh, writing it, but I'm so grateful that... Um, Oh, what is it? The McFerrin thing will be on a site called Bookstore Memories. And it's this guy who, this guy named Uncle Polly. I don't know if you know Uncle Polly, but when I worked at Strange No, but I met, I met Mick, um, and he was an amazing and a wonderful person and, like, ridiculously yeah. intelligent. We played some of his music on the Halloween show that I did a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's, that's nice. I know I'm going to I'm going to cry, but I think I'm going to write this piece more from a, hey, motherfucker, motherfucking kids, you don't know shit about anything, but you're <laughs> yeah. here's this really cool dude. And, you know, pick whatever it is that you're into. And but, you know, I, I really uh, miss. Um, I mean, I know I'm not alone. I mean, you know, he was a cult figure, but um, but yeah, his, I didn't know anything his, about him until you introduced me to him and I got to meet him and talk to him for a little bit. And it was amazing. And I yeah, thank you. So, but, oh, so, but um, it will be on a site called Bookstore Memories, mm -hmm. which is run by Uncle Polly, who was a very important figure for decades in the bookstore, <laughs> the bookstore season, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Because, you know, I knew him from, he had a store called Atlantis Books in Burbank, downtown Burbank. Oh, I remember that place. Me. They stocked my magazine. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, uh, Uncle Polly. Uncle Polly did all. He did okay, a million, okay, yeah. Now I remember. Things. But his last uh, like public job that people might know from was he was running Cliff's Books up until the bitter end. And, oh, um, Cliff's up in Pasadena. Just, yeah, which is now closed. As yeah, far as I know. Just, that was an amazing yeah, place. Yeah. It was too amazing to live. Apparently. Okay. No, it's it's sad. I mean, you know, you hear these these. Uh, these little mumblings about how people are going back to 
the mom and pop retail experiences. Like they don't realize, you know, you walk into a bookstore, you stare at a used book and you're sitting there trying to price it for a dollar cheaper on your phone in front of the bookstore owner. It's like people like that. Okay. They can also go to the death chamber. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Now we just eliminated half the population. Now there should be plenty of resources. You have to wait ever after the end. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, when you, you know, well, my friends are feeling sentient beings, and, and I go, all the people I know that I, I choose to know uh, are that way too. But then you walk into a used bookstore, you see somebody do something like that, and you just go, it's like nine levels of wrong. And, and I just, I don't know. Is there hope for the kids? There? I don't know. Like, I was saying that when I was a kid, though, too. So it's like, <laughs> There are for some. I've met many people that are in their 20s and all that that are, are totally cool and, and with it. And uh, I there was a, a, a kid, 18, he got a, um, Sigrid knew him, he, he got a scholarship to UC Santa Cruz. And he lived in East L.A. in, in a trailer with his mom in a trailer home. Um, I drove him up to UC Santa Cruz because he had no other way to get up there. And I thought, hey, adventure. The guy, at first he started telling me about all this history I didn't know about and the Roman Empire. And I was like, what the hell? How does he know all this stuff? The guy's, the guy's like just turning 18. And then I, after a while, I got tired of that. And I said, would you like to listen to some music? Because I was like, let's just see some music. I put on like Devo and the cars. And so he started telling me when the song came out, what album it was on, who sang on the, on the track. I was like, whoa. You know, so that, that gave me a ton of hope. <laughs> that's, that's that's i hope there are more people like that yeah there. and um, he's this like hispanic kid from east la and he would have had no opportunity but he got he applied for a scholarship and got it so it was just amazing to me to hear this kid talking about this stuff it was it was like well, where the hell did he pick up this information steel trap mine so i think he's gonna do great shit with it i hope i hear of him you know being famous someday or at least being happy and making a difference in people's lives so whatever you know, I got you. Got to think about stuff like that, otherwise you just get totally. You know, you you start going down these bad roads, and and I do it once in a while too, but I try to balance it. You know, excluded middle. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I when you're talking about people making a difference in other people's lives, I I've been meaning to bring up that I may be starting a fundraiser very very quickly, a very small fundraiser uh, to go to Manhattan and collect the life stories of Timothy Green Beckley, who in my opinion is, uh, well, he's my favorite person in all of ufology, and he is the last of his kind, let's just say. I mean, for people that don't recognize the name, he's uh, been a book publisher for decades under the imprint Inner Light Publications. He puts together these great repackaged deals, but he's ultimate character, and he was friends with John Keel and Jim Mosley and all those guys, and he has a super sharp wit. He's had a little uh, health difficulty stuff lately, and um, I, I'm like sitting here going, okay, well, do I go back to fostering kittens, or I raise, do I attempt to raise the funds just to get my ass 
so I can to the other side of the country, uh, so I can sit down for a couple weeks with this treasure trove of amazing UFO knowledge. And yeah, and, get get and the information from him before he can't talk to anybody about it anymore. Before his mind goes or whatever. That that's we're that's amazing. We're not going that far. <laughs> we're not going that far. I, you will be as sharp as a tack till the day he died. Well, but it, um, but, but somebody but has to do it. To do. Well, this is something I've been wanting to do for for quite. Sorry, some time, Tim, if you like, heard that. I don't think you're going nuts. Sorry, Tim. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's there's there's no time like the present, and you know, it's like I had a lot of people pass away on me uh, last year. Um, two people that were very close to me at various points in my life, um, and uh, I knew it was coming, and I couldn't really make things the way I wanted them to be, let's just say. But um, Beckley, Beckley is somebody who everybody should be aware of him if they're interested at all in the subject of UFOs or the sociology and, and pop culturiness of the importance of UFOs as they stand against the rest of history. I mean, he's he's got a, a, a golden heart. He's a great showman. He's a rock and roll promoter. He started writing for his local paper about UFOs when he was fourteen, and he's in his late sixties now. And so, Beckley and his and his decades and decades of amazing stories. Um, I, I really feel it's important that I, I get my butt out there. So, we'll see if I can if I can do that. <laughs> if anybody has any tips. They can they can get in touch, and I also should say that I have an anthology of my writing coming out uh, um, in a form that could be easily transmitted into ebook very soon. I've told people, and I've told this to you. Um, at one point, you you pointed out how shitty my writing was, or what was wrong with it, and I taught me how to be a lot better not- writer because you basically said. Um, you read the first line of something I wrote and said, "Why do I even want to read more uh, any past here?" And you were totally right. And that was a people tell me, ask me for writing advice. I passed that along, and that came from you. Yeah. I, I, but I never said that your writing was shitty. I would never say something. No, like no, that. you didn't say it was shitty. I'm sorry. You just said, you know, "How can I improve it?" And then you said, "I'm not going to be yeah. nice." And I said, "I don't want you to be nice. I want you to tell me how to improve it." And so your first yeah. thing was, "Why do I want to read past this first sentence?" And then it, you know, developed into, um, and I don't know if you told me this or I figured this out from you telling me, but the basic thing about a lot of writing is you have to imagine that whoever's reading it has much better things to do at that time. And you have to keep telling them, no, 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 no. The better thing to do is to keep reading what I wrote. Um, and that should be the, the idea in front of your brain the whole time, every sentence that comes out of your mind. But see, the way I look at it is I won't write something unless I believe it needs to be written and it's a it's a thing and i am taking pre-orders still because i've already got so many um and can i say what they could do not that they know what's in the book at all no no say <laughs> the, 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 say everything you need to say for people to find out about the book and what it's oh, going to be about and the okay. title and all uh, that okay well if, if judging by this radio show you you like the way you think just imagine it being applied to film music culture uh paranormal, ufological material going back a couple of decades. I've interviewed some very interesting people. I've written some pretty decent articles. Um, and uh, I would very much like it if you would pre-order my book if you have the ability. And it's $23 plus $4 shipping and handling. And um, you can either PayPal $27 to get paypal.me forward slash 
S-K-Y-L-A-I-R-E. Or you can find me on Facebook or you can um, um, you can send me a message in a bottle or uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually project. So you can uh, either watch her um, her uh, um, site, Skylar.com, S-K-Y-L-A-I-R-E.com, or um, uh, get in touch with her on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook would be better because um, my website is like, oh, I had to take down the writing I have because it's going the book <laughs> yeah, partially exactly. and also mm-hmm. it's just it's weird. It's like it's like this static business card, you know what I mean? It's like, but it has to be there, otherwise you yeah, don't. Yeah, you got to do it. And I'm, and I, I will maybe have a page for the book, which is called The Outcast Factory, yes. which is a play on the Outcast manufacturers. Uh, because I, I was like, what is it? What is the underlying theme of all these pieces in this book? Well, they don't really fit anywhere else. I mean, they fit together, but they don't fit. Um, so, you know, the ideas of um, being uh, <laughs> being outside the margins is something that stuck with me for a long time. And I have some other projects that are connected. And, this, that, and the other, but it's like there are only so many hours in Outcast. Uh, what song do you want to hear at the end here that's going to be the, the, the bookend to the uh, end of the show? I always let the guest pick now. Oh, shoot. I should have, I should have given that some thought. How about um, number one song in heaven <laughs> by Sparks? Ah. For some reason, the first thing, I, I, I was going to say Black Sabbath, and I forgot the Black Sabbath song that I was thinking of because that's not even, that was like a little hello to my friend. But um, um, I've, actually, I've never played well, Sparks at the end of the show, you, so that's I, good. Actually, now that I own the BBC, which is a few years old, but it's kind of the idea that it's uh, Joe Schmo ends up with this media conglomerate. He doesn't know what to do with it. It's kind of the idea of having um, a lot of power and control, and you have no idea uh, what to do with it. Or I, oh my gosh, and I, oh gosh, I need to breathe. Um, yes, you do. This is also sparks. Yes. Well, I'll play that, and I will say thank you. And I, I can talk to you off the air here for a couple of minutes, but then i got to start working. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> All right, sure. thanks. Uh, here's, uh, here's Sparks, and thanks, Skylar. Thank you, Greg. All right. Uh-oh, here we go. Thanks for listening. Uh, see you next week. I'm going to post another show here pretty soon. Get off their hands A button note Was changing hands As I took it off their hands I had plans I had plans Now that I own the BBC What am I supposed to do with this thing? Now that I own the BBC What am I supposed to make of this thing? All this power 